you are hanging on by a very thin thread. <laughs> and I dig that about you. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Cash is piling up over there. The yield curve is telling us to beware. It's time we stop spinning. What's that sound? Everyone look what's going round. Market's heading down again. Where's the trend? Large cap's still our friends, giving up those dividends. Even when lending starts to slow. Oh no. Spreads are tightening, getting frightening. Money market's more inviting. 4%, kind of enticing, not too shabby, with the risk premium looking flabby. And the Fed's not done putting out this fire. But it's a high wire act, and that's a fact. Recession looming. Can we keep consuming? With rates this high, you can't deny. It's getting harder to invest. Putting us to the test. It's time for office hours on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and happy spring holiday season to all of you celebrating at this time of year. We're coming back to a full week of questions about the Fed's next move, how weak is economic growth going to be in the near term, the softness of earnings reports about to cross the wires, and whether all of that is priced into the equity market. Stocks ended the holiday shortened week last week with losses, putting an end to the three-week winning streak for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ, which looked to be in cruise control this year, fell just over 1% as the Dow Industrials actually finished the week in the green, powered by big oil and gas. That surprise production cut from OPEC and its allies last week, led by Saudi Arabia, put the charge back into the oil patch for the time being. The March jobs report gave us a little Goldilocks moment, not too hot and not too cold. U.S. employers added 236,000 jobs to their payrolls last month, slightly softer than forecast as the unemployment rate dipped to 3.5%. That tells you more people were looking for work as the jobs market is showing some early signs of tightening. We learned earlier last week from the JOLTS report that there are now just under 10 million jobs available across the country. That's still 1.7 for every available worker. All in, though, U.S. employers have added more than 1 million jobs so far this year compared to just over 300,000 layoffs. More than 100,000 of those layoffs are in the tech industry alone. We also learned that average weekly wages climbed just 0.2% last month, now clocking at a 4.2% annual pace. That's not keeping up with inflation, to be sure, but that slowing pace is exactly what the Federal Reserve wants to see. It wants to stamp out wage inflation because higher wages are putting pressure on companies who in turn pass those higher costs onto us, the consumer. If we stop spending because of higher prices, there goes the Jenga tower. Consumer spending is close to 70% of U.S. GDP. Consumers are hanging in there, spending the good old American way. But there are signs that is starting to weaken too. And that is something to keep an eye on, which leads us straight in to our big three for the week. Number one, it's pretty rare that we see such a big disconnect between what's happening in the bond market, especially U.S. Treasuries, and what's happening in the major equity market averages, which are mostly trending higher for the year. And the reason that might be happening is that everyone is trying to figure out what the Fed's next move might look like. As of now, the market is mostly expecting the Fed to raise rates another quarter of a percent when it meets in early May. According to the CME's FedWatch tool, which has been getting a lot of use lately, there's a 70% probability that will happen, and it tracks with the Fed's most recent dot plot. But if we look deeper into the future, the market is showing more signs of rate cuts beginning as early as July. If we go all the way out to the end of 2024, the market is implying that the Fed funds rate will be back below 3%. That kind of elasticity over such a short time period is enough to make you pull a hamstring. And in fact, 
it has led to a record inversion in the U.S. yield curve with a three-month treasury yield at 4.91%, now 1.61% higher than the 10-year yield, which sits at around 3.3%. In fact, it's never been more inverted than it is today, going all the way back to 1962 when we started measuring these things. Translation, short-term expectations for the economy look dim and the risk to hold short-term government bonds is pretty high. Yield curve inversions can be the canaries in the coal mine for a recession, but we don't need little birds to tell us that these days. Which leads us to number two, which is that equities are not presenting that attractive of an opportunity against other asset classes like they used to. If we take a look at the equity risk premium, which is the gap between the S&P 500 earnings yield and that of U.S. Treasuries, it's as low as it has been since 2007 at 1.59 percentage points. That is well below the average gap of around 3.5% where it's been hovering since 2008. That's when the Fed floored interest rates to navigate the economy out of the financial crisis. Stocks kind of need to promise a higher reward than bonds for investors to get interested for the long term. And with CDs, money market accounts, and money market funds also yielding 4% or higher, there are other alternatives. It's Tara time. Tina is taking a break. And number three. It may be time to tighten the belt buckle a notch or two because lending is tightening up inside bank land. In the last two weeks of March, lending by banks contracted more than it ever has in history in terms of dollars. Commercial banking lending dropped nearly $105 billion in the two weeks ending March 29th and fell by another $45 billion last week as small banks in particular tightened up their vaults. We also learned from the Fed's H8 report, which tracks the balance sheets for all commercial banks in the U.S., that commercial bank deposits dropped $64.7 billion the week before last. That was the 10th straight weekly decrease, mind you, and a lot of that was happening before Silicon Valley Bank went under. And on Thursday, the American Bankers Association Index of Credit Conditions fell to the lowest level in three years. Yet another sign that credit conditions are weakening, which will only cause banks to tighten up even more. Let's get set up for the week ahead. Some global markets will be closed for Easter Monday, but the U.S. is open for business and earnings are back on the menu in a big way. The first quarter reporting season begins in earnest on Thursday with Delta Airlines on the runway and then big banks take center stage on Friday as J.P. Morgan, BlackRock, Wells Fargo, and Citi all report results. We're going to be listening very closely to what they have to say about their net interest margins, the money they make from lending, especially with lending so tight and interest rates so high. We're also going to be listening closely for details on their balance sheets and their percentages of uninsured deposits. We haven't had another bank run or failure in a few weeks, which is a good sign, but lending is super tight. We also want to know about the size of their reserves given the scrutiny around the Fed's latest stress tests and the composition of their deposits. We know so many of them are holding government bonds, and if they had to mark those to market today, their balance sheets wouldn't look good at all. On the economic front, it's back to inflation. We'll get the latest reading on consumer prices on Wednesday with the release of CPI data from March. Prices are projected to have risen 0.3% last month compared to a 0.4% gain in February. Year over year, they were likely up just over 5%, decelerating from 6% in February. Core inflation, which excludes volatile food and energy costs, is projected to come in at an annual rate of 5.6%, up slightly from 5.5% in February. That's followed by the release of the producer price index on Thursday, tracking inflation from the standpoint of manufacturers and wholesalers. Producer prices were likely unchanged last month, falling about 0.1% in February. On an annual basis, they're projected to have risen just 3.1%, decelerating from 4.6% back in February. 
This would mark the slowest annual gain in over two years. The big question for investors is how is the Fed going to factor all of this data into its next decision on interest rates? Remember, the Fed wants inflation closer to 2%. So if we're still above 5%, expect to hear this again in May. We think we've covered a lot of ground and financial conditions have certainly tightened. Uh, I would say uh, we still think there's work to do there. We are riding through waves of one of those unique moments in economic history when fiscal policy and monetary policy are smashing up against each other, leaving a wake of sticky high inflation and the most aggressive interest rate hikes in generations to beat it down. Those rate hikes, as we know, have thrown the ice blanket on the housing market and beaten up the balance sheets of banks across the planet, and they've also put economic growth in low gear as recession clouds are gathering swiftly. So where do we go from here, and can we learn anything from history to help guide us through the storm? No one has a better view on this than Alan Blinder. He's the Gordon S. Rentschler Memorial Professor of Economics and Public Affairs at Princeton University, a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, the author of 23 books, including A Monetary and Fiscal History of the United States from 1961 to 2021. So yeah, he knows all about this, and he's our very special guest this week on The Express. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much. I'm not sure I know all about this, but I'll do my best. If you don't, nobody does. And I am a longtime fan and follower. In addition to your incredible list of achievements throughout your career, you also served on the Council of Economic Advisors from January 93 till June 94 in the Clinton administration and as vice chair of the Board of Governors for the Fed from June 94 to January 1996. And oh, yeah, you worked with the Congressional Budget Office. So you know the halls of government, you know those underground passageways, and you know the central bank pretty well. But you're also an academic and you've studied this extensively. Have you seen anything? Thing, like what we're going through before in history? Sort of. I mean, you know, the old Mark Twain idiom, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So there are rhymes. It's not a replication. From the Federal Reserve's point of view, the closest rhyme, I think, to what's going on in the banking system now is not the 2008 global crisis, which some people bring up, but the SNL crisis that happened long before that. If, if you remember what happened there, these banks, we now call them, we call them thrifts then, had very unbalanced interest rate risk. They were lending long mortgages, borrowing short deposits, often demand deposits. And when interest rates rose a lot, so there's the parallel, they were basically corpses. Now, what happened then is Congress kept the corpses alive with some steroids and some phony bookkeeping and through the Reagan years and only in the George Bush, the first years, did they actually do what was necessary to put this crisis behind us. It had the two causes. It was caused by poor banking practices, but also by a very rapid increase in interest rates in order to fight inflation, which is what's happening now. You know the expression, the Fed raises rates until something breaks and something is broken within the balance sheets of banks. And Fed Chair Powell has said, we got to look inside and see how we may have missed a lot of this. There was activities going on in SVB and other banks that were of a different nature. But inside the Fed, and you work there, why didn't they see this coming? Or did they see it coming and just said, bring it on because we have to keep tightening monetary policy to bring down inflation? The internal supervisory answer to that I don't know yet. I have some hunches only, but Michael Barr, the vice chair for supervision, is going to issue a report at the beginning of May. 
A question to which we don't have answers yet is to what extent was the San Francisco Fed sleeping on the job and not really slapping the bank over the wrist hard enough the way it should? Or to what extent did the bank just ignore the slaps and say, you know, what are you going to do to me? Uh, we're not doing this. We don't know the answer. As to interest rates, when this blew up mid-March, roughly, I thought, and a minority of others thought, the Fed should pause and just hang on, not raise interest rates more until the cloud of uncertainty had dissipated a bit. Not that Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank by themselves were nearly enough to tell the Fed, stop fighting inflation, you have to fight bank bankruptcies. No. But just to pause, was this going to be a big deal? Were these the first two, three out of 20, 30, 40 banks that were going to go have this fate? I think we now know, quote, no, unquote, the answer to that. We're only in April, but it looks like the answer is no. This was not the tip of an iceberg, but was a few isolated cases. Now, maybe there'll be more than those two, but it doesn't look anything like 50, 100 banks are going to suffer the same fate, at least as of today, it doesn't look that way. In which case, it gives the Fed the green light to go back to its inflation fighting, and I expect they will. Do you think the Fed, and I'm not asking you to take shots at the Fed, but just, since you work there and you study monetary policy so closely, were they a little late to the inflation game? Or could they just not predict the supply-demand imbalances that came out of $7 trillion flooding in from the government into the US economy amid the pandemic and all the things that would be broken and weird coming out of that? Should they have seen this coming? Is there any way to see this coming? So could I say both? There were a number of things that mainly in magnitude rather than qualitatively could not have been foreseen. I'll give you a very clear example. These supply-side interruptions, breaks in supply chains and shortages of this, that, and the other thing, that they would happen was not a big shock. But the extent and magnitude, and especially how long they lasted, was a legitimate surprise. Certainly was a surprise to me. I'm sure there were some people in the world that were saying, this is going to last two years or something like that. There's always somebody who's got it right and somebody who's got it dead wrong. But I've characterized the mistake that I made and the Fed made this same mistake as excessive faith in capitalism. We teach economics here to uh, Princeton students, and we teach them, among other things, that when there's an opportunity for profit, capitalists jump on it. And they come in and they sort of arbitrage the difference and they make a lot of money in doing that. So where were they? I still don't to this day understand why it took as long as it did. So that's a legitimate part that was a surprise. If the Fed was surprised by that, that's a forgivable error. They were certainly surprised by the war in Ukraine. Nobody was predicting that. Again, I'm sure you can find someone who's predicting it. Well, for the most part, it was not predicted. And that was very relevant to the inflation picture. The part that was predictable and where they bear some blame is the as the economy started recovering very rapidly from the pandemic catastrophe, both monetary policy and fiscal policy were on hyperdrive, super expansionary, both. And the Fed was probably almost certainly too late in correcting that and 
moving to a more restrictive monetary policy. Where does this leave us now, Professor? Are we in a recession? Are we going into recession between everything, inflation, the high interest rates, the bank issues? You know, you see the Fed's projections and their summary of economic projections grows pretty slow this year, 0.8%, I believe, and only about 1.4, 1.2% next year. Where does this leave us from your perspective? And if it is a recession, is it like any other recession we've ever seen? Because we have pretty low unemployment and some of the other indicators are kind of still green. Yeah, it doesn't look or feel like a recession. I have a hard time saying we're in a recession when the unemployment rate is three and a half percent and basically has been three and a half percent for a year or so. It's not like it's it used to be two and it rose to three and a half. I mean, we're at the peak employment, the bottom of the unemployment rate in 50 years. And jobs are still being created at above what is commonly called the replacement rate. That is given they have a growing economy, there are more people to work. How many is that? 90 to 100,000 a month. The last jobs report was in the ballpark of 250. The last few have been in that. So this doesn't look like a recession to me at all. Back in ancient days, you mentioned my book, which goes back to the 60s. We had an expression that we thought was important and then died out called the growth recession. What was a growth recession? It wasn't an actual recession. GDP wasn't falling, but growth dipped below, let's call it the trend rate, the rate of potential GDP growth, which meant that the unemployment rate sort of crept up slowly, that we were below the replacement rate, but still in positive territories. That's what this sort of looks like almost. Not quite. As I just mentioned, we're still above the replacement rate in job creation. But those slow GDP numbers that you mentioned, if they come true, are certainly below the potential growth rate. And so it sort of looks like a growth recession. I want to go back in history because I learned so much rereading your book. I want to talk about the new economics that really came about in the Kennedy administration. And there's some really interesting characters in there, folks. If you haven't read or even glanced through a monetary and fiscal history of the United States by Professor Blinder, I'm going to link to it in the show notes because I was blown away with some of these things. Bill Martin, big Fed chair, super important Fed chair, not even an economist at the time, but Kennedy wanted to push some tax cuts through. But if it weren't for the fact that he were assassinated, things might be very, very different. Just take us back to that period in time and the birth of new economics, because you document it so well. And I bring it up now because it kind of sets us up for where we are today, given all the fiscal stimulus and what the Fed is having to do to combat it. I know they're very different eras, but if it weren't for that era and some key players and moments in that period of time, things might look very different around here. Take us through. Sure will. So let me start with the word new. What came to be called the new economics in the early 60s wasn't new in academia at all. It dated basically from Keynes' fantastic book in 1936. And it was widely taught in universities, including in the United States, before Kennedy became president. What was new was actually promulgating it as part of national economic policy. The Eisenhower administration, which was the previous eight years, was not interested in that. To Eisenhower, running a budget deficit, which is what you'll get if you cut taxes, was anathema, if not immoral. I mean, it was just a terrible thing to do. And Lord knows what horrible things would happen to the country if you did it. By the way, the Lord knows is what in the world were those things? But anyway, it was kind of a taboo. 
And it was especially something you didn't do, a tax cut, if the economy was not in a recession, which we weren't at the time, and you already had a budget deficit. Budget was not balanced. Kennedy, listening to his Keynesian advisors rather than to his father, Joe Kennedy never would have said do that, and I'm sure he didn't, decided to go recommend a sizable tax cut even though there was already a budget deficit, nothing compared to now, but a budget deficit, and there was not a recession. The economy was recovering from the 60-61. He wanted miles. to supercharge it. Yeah, he wanted it to grow faster. That's exactly right. Now, the other thing you alluded to is this is historical speculation. Given how difficult it proved to get that Kennedy-Johnson tax cut through Congress, I'm very doubtful that were it not for the assassination of John F. Kennedy, that the tax cut ever would have passed. In very large measure, I, my read of the politics was that it was passed as a tribute to the slain president. Now, it also took Lyndon Johnson bending some arms and cajoling and things, and he was pretty good at that. But the point is that it was such a departure from U.S. norms not Swedish norms or British norms, but U.S. norms, that it's easy to imagine that were not for this horrible assassination, it never would have passed. One of those moments in history that had profound impacts beyond the huge impact that it had on everybody, not just in this country and in the world. I want to talk about the dollar because there's this growing drumbeat, Professor, around the demise of the dollar. We've heard rumors of China and Saudi Arabia talking about dealing in only yuan going forward. Russia and China are getting a little bit closer together, and there's this general fear going on that the dollar has seen its heyday. Put that in perspective for us. Is that real? Because when I look at the amount of transactions that take place and the percentage that happen across dollars and all the countries that peg their currencies to the dollar and everything that happens on the back of the greenback, it seems hard to believe. So I would love for you to set us straight. It should be hard to believe. Let me say two things that may sound a little contradictory because it depends on your time frame. If you look at broad swaths of history, I'm talking centuries, the nation whose currency is the dominant currency in world trade, let's say, or world finance or both, has changed numerous times. Prior to in the interwar period and before, it was the British pound. Go back further, it was the Dutch guilder, and there have been a number over the years. Since around World War II, so that's a long time. It's been the United States dollar, unquestionably. And as you were just suggesting, if you look at the numbers, trade invoicing, foreign exchange, volumes in various currencies, the financial flows of all sorts, equities, debt, derivatives, everything, it's so incredibly dominated by dollars, U.S. dollars. <laughs> that it's hard to imagine a different sort of a world anytime soon. But the reason I said the first thing is, if you ask me 100 years from now, who knows? If you ask me 20 years from now, I would bet you tremendous odds it's still going to be the dollar as the dominant currency. And there's many reasons for that. But let me just start and finish with you mentioned the Chinese. China is the big, rapid-growing economy these days. In finite time, it'll be bigger than the United States. Its GDP will be bigger than the United States. 
it is already as big a figure in world trade as the United States is. But in the financial realm, it's a peanut. And the reasons that it's a peanut are both foreign and domestic. First of all, China does not want to do the things you have to do to be a major financial center, which is like, let people trade freely in your currency, let them short your government bonds, uh, let your exchange rate float, and you know, on and on and on. There are a whole list of things that we do in the United States without even thinking about it, that the Chinese would say, are you kidding me? You want me to do that? They are not going to do that. Secondly, there's the trust in the money if you send it to China. I'll make a small portfolio confession. I have exactly zero dollars in Chinese equities. I don't trust them. I don't know what's going to happen. It certainly is probably going to grow faster than the US, the Chinese economy compared to the US economy. But that does not induce me, or never mind me, millions and millions of other investors that their money should be in China because they don't feel secure in their property rights in China. Transparency, kind of important for people putting billions or trillions of dollars to work these days, right? People have to know yeah, and be able to see under like the to know if you can get it back. All right, let's talk about you. You've been a prince in your whole career, but you've been in academia and in public service for a very long time. Who's been your biggest influence in your career as an economist? I think one of them was certainly my PhD thesis advisor, Robert Solow a great, great economist who's still alive, by the way, at the ripe old age of, I think he just had his 99th birthday. God bless him. He was certainly a very big influence. In a very different way, Bill Clinton was a big influence. So there's the mechanical influence that is he appointed me to the Council of Economic Advisors. So I was there at the beginning of the Clinton administration, which, by the way, is the right time to be on the Council of Economic Advisors before the bureaucracy has ossified. It's very fluid. And I was in meetings, even allowed to speak in those meetings in ways that members of the CEA usually aren't once things ossified. I also learned a lot about political economy by watching what was going on and watching Bill Clinton navigate the hazards. And then he appointed me to the Federal Reserve. Well, it is the economy stupid, as they used to say around his campaign halls. All right, let's go out on this. You know, Investopedia is a site built on our terms, our econ terms, our investing in finance terms. I got to ask you, one of the great American economists in history, what's your favorite term or what is your favorite economic term of the moment that really paints things clearly for you? I have a lot of favorites. I could say carbon tax, but that's useless. I'm whistling in the dark. But right now, thinking about monetary and fiscal policy, which is what our focus has been, I think the old word trade-off, which is part of the essence of economics in many, many respects, is really at the fore these days. Just look at the Federal Reserve. It's right now, as we, you and I are talking, contemplating, among other things, the trade-off between worrying about banks or the financial system more generally, and worrying about inflation. Those aren't often in opposition, but lately they have been. So, for example, I criticize the Fed mildly. I'm not a big, big critic of the Fed for raising interest rates so soon after the Silicon Valley calamity. I thought they should just wait 
let the dust clear and see, as we were saying before, was this going to be two, three banks or was this going to be 50, 100 banks? And they didn't do that. They went ahead and raised interest rates anyway. But there was a very clear trade-off there. And over a slightly broader time frame, but not a gigantic time frame, there's been a trade-off between monetary and fiscal stimulus of the economy, which have different effects on the economy. So I think recently trade-off is the uh, watchword. Yeah, and that's a great one. And it really is at the core of your book, A Monetary and Fiscal History of the United States. Folks, check it out. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's a big one and you can go pretty deep, but it is fascinating. Some fascinating stuff. They're so good to have you on the Investopedia Express. Professor Alan Blinder, the Gordon S. Rentschler Memorial Professor of Economics and Public Affairs at Princeton University and one of the top minds in economics today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Marty Zweig, the legendary investor who is known for racking up huge returns and predicting the 1987 stock market crash. Zweig came up with the Zweig breadth thrust. And while that sounds like an Eastern European swimming style, it's not, according to Investopedia. It's actually a technical indicator used to ascertain market momentum. It's computed by calculating the number of advancing issues on an exchange, such as the New York Stock Exchange, divided by the total number of issues, advancing plus declining on it, and generating a 10-day moving average of this percentage. The indicator signals the start of a potential new bull market when it moves from a level of below 40%, indicating an oversold market, to a level above 61.5% within a 10-day period. This is a rarely occurring sentiment indicator, which carries tremendous importance with market watchers. It's so rare, actually, it's happened only 14 times since 1950. And guess what? The Zweig breath thrust just triggered. More than 93% of stocks were recently above their 10-day moving average. And every year that's happened since 1950, the S&P 500 was higher a year later, every single time, up more than 23% on average a year later as well, according to our buddy Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group. Will 2023 be an outlier? We're going to let Warren Buffett take us out this week. Why not? Buffett reminds us that while the economy is always sending us different signals, investors like him and Charlie Munger rarely factor those in when making investment decisions. Here's Buffett with our pal Andy Sewer in a Yahoo Finance interview from 2021. Economic predictions just don't enter into our decisions. Charlie Munger, my partner, and I, in you know, 54 years now, we've never made a decision based on an economic prediction. We make business predictions about what individual businesses will do over time. And we compare that to what we have to pay for them. But we have never said yes to something because we thought the economy was going to do well in the next year or two years. And we've never said no to anything because we were right in the middle of a panic even if the price was right. As the sign over Buffett's office says, invest like a champion today. Special thanks to Professor Alan Blinder for hopping aboard the Express, another legend in the wonderful world of investing, finance, and economics. We're going to link to his bio page at Princeton and his great book and to all the reports we cited on today's show. Find all that in your show notes and on investopedia.com slash the Express podcast. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.